if you got your outline, um, it's a little bit uh, bigger today because I put on, a, on there a poem that I wanted to read you. Uh, not often that we read poetry, but this one, this one just had a, a special place uh, in my heart as I was studying for this week's message. And so it's a long one, but bear with me. The name of this uh, poem is Curfew Must Not Ring Tonight by Rose Hartwick Thorpe, a woman from, uh, 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 from before our day. And this poem that she writes is uh, about an incident from the 17th century. And it reads this. Uh, Curfew must not ring tonight. Slowly England's sun was setting o'er the hilltops far away, filling all the land with beauty at the close of one sad day. And its last rays kissed the forehead of a man and maiden fair. He with steps so slow and weary, she with sunny floating hair. He with bowed head, sad and thoughtful, she with lips all cold and white, struggling to keep back the murmur. Curfew must not ring tonight. Sexton, Bessie's white lips faltered, pointing to the prison old, with its walls tall and gloomy, moss-grown walls dark, damp and cold. I've a lover in the prison, doomed this very night to die, at the ringing of the curfew, and no earthly help is nigh. Cromwell will not come till sunset, and her lips grew strangely white, as she spoke in husky whispers, Curfew must not ring tonight. Bessie calmed, calmly spoke the sexton. Every word pierced her young heart like a gleaming death-winged arrow, like a deadly poisoned dart. Long, long years I've rung the curfew from that gloomy shadowed tower. Every evening, just at sunset, it has told the twilight hour. I have done my duty ever, tried to do it just and right. Now I'm old, I will not miss it. Curfew bell must ring tonight. Wild her eyes and pale her features, stern and white her thoughtful brow. As within her secret bosom, Bessie made a solemn vow. She had listened while the judges read without a tear or sigh. At the ringing of the curfew, Basil Underwood must die. And her breath came fast and faster, and her eyes grew large and bright. One low murmur, faintly spoken, curfew must not ring tonight. She, with quick step, bounded forward, sprang within the old church door, left the old man coming slowly, past he'd trod so oft before. Not one moment paused the maiden, but with eye and cheek aglow, staggered up the gloomy tower where the bell swung to and fro. As she climbed the slimy ladder on which fell no ray of light, upward still her pale lips saying, curfew shall not ring tonight. She has reached the topmost ladder. O'er her hangs the great dark bell. Awful is the gloom beneath her like the pathway down to hell. See, the ponderous tongue is swinging. Tis the hour of curfew now. And the sight has chilled her bosom, stopped her breath and paled her brow. Shall she let it ring? No, never. Her eyes flash with sudden light as she springs and grasps it firmly. Curfew shall not ring tonight. Out she swung far out. The city seemed a speck of light below. There twixt heaven and earth suspended as the bell swung to and fro. And the sexton at the bell rope, old and deaf, heard not the bell, sadly thought that twilight curfew rang young Basil's funeral knell. 
Still the maiden, clinging firmly, quivering lip and fair face white, still her frightened heart's wild throbbing, curfew shall not ring tonight. It was o'er. The bell ceased swaying. And the maiden stepped once more, firmly on the damp old ladder, where for hundred years before, human foot had not been planted. The brave deed that she had done should be told long ages after as the rays of setting sun light the sky with golden beauty. Aged sires with heads of white tell the children why the curfew did not ring that one sad night. O'er the distant hills comes Cromwell. Bessie sees him and her brow, lately white with sickening horror, has no anxious traces now. At his feet, she tells her story, shows her hands all bruised and torn, and her sweet young face still haggard with the anguish it had worn, touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light. Go, your lover lives said Cromwell, curfew shall not ring tonight. Wide they flung the massive portals, led the prisoner forth to die, all his bright young life before him neath the darkening English sky. Bessie came with flying footsteps, eyes aglow with love light sweet, kneeling on the turf beside him, laid his pardon at his feet. In his brave, strong arms he clasped her, kissed the face upturned in white, whispered, darling, you have saved me. Curfew will not ring tonight. This is a, uh, a poem based on a true story set in mid-17th century England. An English court had sentenced a soldier to be executed for his crimes. And the execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. But when the sexton, when the, the man who, who took care of the church and the maintenance, when, when he pulled the rope of the church bell, not a sound was made. The soldier's fiancée had climbed the bell tower, had wrapped herself, had wrapped her body, around the clapper of the bell so that it could not strike and make a chime. And as the story goes, when the woman was brought down from the tower, she was bruised and she was bleeding. And then military commander Oliver Cromwell, also known as Old Ironsides, arrived on the scene Cromwell was so touched by the woman's act of love that he set her fiancé free, saying, Your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. And today you can go to St. Peter's Church in Chertsey, England, where the church bell still hangs and where the sexton still pulls the bell cord for curfew each night. True story. A woman and her undying love. Why do we read this poem today? Why do we consider this story today? Because, friends, today, as we open up our Bibles, we're going to read another story of unbelievable love. 
we're going to come to a portion of Scripture that reminds our hearts of God's never-ending love. And just, just as the woman wrapped herself around the clapper of the bell so that it might not chime, so also we are going to, to read today of God's love which has covered us, covered us whole, covered us so completely that no danger can come our way. He has completely, in His Son Jesus Christ, covered us with His love. And thus, the title of my message today, Covered by His Love. Covered by His Love. Will you turn to Romans chapter 8? We're going to begin reading in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And will you stand with me as we read the Word of the Lord together? Uh, 31 to 39, and then we'll uh, consider it uh, together. Once again, Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. Paul writes this. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with Christ also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, Lord, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You may be seated. Paul writes in verse 31, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what are these things? What, what is Paul speaking of when he, he notes that, you know, what, what are we supposed to, how are we supposed to respond to these things? Well, the these things are listed in verses 29 and 30. Paul has just finished in Romans 8 speaking about God's providence, his plan for you and for me. For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, and this is what he says about us. He says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined or he set us apart to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? Paul asked rhetorically. He says, look. If God has done this, if God has done these great things, if God is for us, who can be against us? If He has lavished upon us these great gifts, so many great gifts, we've seen them, we've seen them listed throughout Romans 8. We've seen that Christians are emancipated from slavery to sin. 
We see that Christians are free from death. We see that that we have the Spirit of God within us. That the Spirit gives us life. That the Father has adopted us. That the Spirit is testifying to the Father that we are His children. That we are heirs of God. That we can become joint heirs with Christ. That our future glory doesn't compare to the present sufferings. That the Spirit of God is praying on our behalf. All of these things that we've seen just in Romans 8. All of these blessings. All of these, these lavish gifts given to you and to me. Paul says, what else can we say? What else can we say when you look upon all the things that the Lord God has done for you and for me? If God is for us and He is, then who or what can be against us? What can we possibly have to fear because of what God has done for us? If the Father went so far as to give up His own Son that we might attain these blessings, it should assure our hearts that nothing in this life is comparable to what we have in Him. And, and the truth is, friends, God isn't done blessing us. He is not done blessing us at all. Verse 32 indicates that the Father, in cooperation with, with the Son, is going to freely give us all things. Which is to say, He's going to freely give us a portion, a measure of His glory, of His creation, all things, in the kingdom of God. Have you ever, have you ever received a gift that was so overwhelmingly generous? I mean, think about it. Have you ever, have you ever been given something and, and, and when you received it, uh, you were uh, just left speechless? Maybe uh, your spouse gave you something that was that a, a, a tangible gift of some kind. And when you opened it up and when you looked at it, you just you couldn't put to words how special and how meaningful that gift was to you. Maybe it was something that they had made for you. Maybe it was something that they had put so much care and so much thought into. A gift that, that when you open it and you looked at it and you thought, wow, this is, this is overwhelming. This is overwhelming. For me, uh, this was one of my gifts that was overwhelming. Uh, this is, and I've spoken of it before, but I never brought it in, but, but uh, this is my grandfather's Bible. And uh, he has since passed on many years ago, um, almost uh, 11 years now uh, since he's gone on to be with the Lord. But my grandmother, she gave me my grandfather's Bible, this old, uh, old Schofield Bible. And uh, she gave this to me last year. And uh, the leather, I mean, you can smell the leather on this thing. This, this, is, uh, this thing is, is old and it's, it's, it's used it's been there's there's notes all over it. He has prayers in the back of the Bible for his family. And uh, there's hymns that he has placed in the pages of this Bible. And uh, whenever I preach, I'm often uh, consulting my grandfather's commentary, I'm consulting his notes just to see what he might have had to say about a verse or or whether he had highlighted it or not. But for me, this this was one of my gifts that when I received it, I looked at it and I, I was just overwhelmed uh, so much so that really I, one of the first things that came to my mind was my grandmother was handing this to me just last year. 
is I said, you know, uh, Grandma, I, I can't take that. I can't take this gift. I'm, what, what went through my mind is, I, I am not worthy of this gift. I don't deserve this. This is too much. I don't deserve this. Paul has spent a lot of time in Romans 8 listing many overwhelming gifts that God has given to you. He has listed some 12 to 15 or so blessings, overwhelming gifts that you and I have received in Christ. And he knows, Paul knows, that the temptation, that the temptation of one who has received such an overwhelmingly precious and immeasurable gift, he knows that the temptation is to look upon those gifts and to think, you know what, I'm not worthy of these things. These are too valuable. I, I, I don't deserve this, Lord. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. I'm not worthy of this gift, of these gifts. And Paul knows that many times over we feel unfit to receive invaluable gifts. And when that happens, the encouragement that could have come our way is quickly robbed, it's quickly taken from us by our own insecurity, our own feelings of unworthiness. And in light of this, in light of that Temptation to feel like I don't deserve this. This is not for me. You don't understand, Lord. You can't give this to me. In light of that, Paul goes on to confront some of the accusations that may come our way from ourselves or from outside ourselves. And notice what he says after listing all these gifts in Romans 8. He says this in verse 33. Who, who shall bring a charge against us? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Paul says, who will bring a charge against the one who is receiving these things? Who will bring an accusation against them? Paul puts us in really the scene of a courtroom, friends. We have judge, we have prosecutor, and we have defendant. And the question is posed to the would-be prosecutor, what charges, what charges do you have against this Christian? What evidence do you have against this Christian? Against this one who is elect of God? And there would be many would-be prosecutors of you and me in this life. The most obvious one is Satan. He is the great accuser. His name means the accuser. He lies to us all the time. Others, maybe people in the world, they accuse us. They, they remind us that we're not good enough to receive God's blessings. Other accusers might be ourselves. Maybe we even believe the lies of Satan and the lies of the, wor- the, lies of the world. And, and we start looking within ourselves and we start seeing the, the blessings that God has given us and we shirk back and, and, and we say, no, Lord, I, I'm not worthy of this. 
I'm not good enough to receive this. We listen to the lies of the accuser. And his lies ring out all day long. All day long you are being lied to. Do you know that? You are being lied to all day long. You are being told that you're not good enough. You're being told that you're not smart enough. That you're not attractive. That you're not fit. You're not worthy. That no one likes you. That you're a failure. That you're unworthy of love. That you are hopeless. You are being lied to every day by Satan. And these lies are being filled in our heads that we might look upon the blessings that are ours and that will be ours. And that we might think, I don't have that. I couldn't have that. God could never justify me. God could never call me righteous by faith in His Son. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. God couldn't love me. He couldn't feel this way about me. It's not possible. Friends, those are lies. Those are lies from the accuser. When you feel unworthy of love, when you feel that you're not good enough to receive God's love, when you feel that you're just a failure, that no one, that no one likes you, so why would, why would God? When you feel and sense those things in you, know assuredly that you are being lied to by the great accuser. Thankfully, the prosecutor, the accuser, Satan, and we who sometimes accuse ourselves in listening to those lies, thankfully, the prosecutor's charges do not stick. Notice what it says. Paul writes, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. None of the accusations hold water. And why? Because it is God who has justified us. And what is justification? It is God's declaration. His words that a sinner is just by faith in Christ. It is God's words that matter. It is His declaration that ultimately is meaningful. Satan's words of accusation, they pale in comparison to God's words that say you are justified. Now, the words of others, they may criticize us. We ourselves might have words of self-condemnation, but know assuredly that our words, that the words of others, that the words of the accuser, those words do not compare to the one word of justification that God bestows upon you and me when we believe in His Son. His words matter. His words, not our words. His words, not the accuser's words. His words matter. Look at Zechariah 3 on your outline. There. I've listed it there. 
We see here a story of Joshua, the high priest, and he's being accused by Satan. And, and look at the at the response here. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him, to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Satan's accusations don't stand. They don't hold water. And I remember uh, John uh, preached on this, this very passage in Zechariah 3. Fantastic message. If, if you want to consider what Satan is doing every day in accusing you, I, I urge you to go back and listen to that message. But know assuredly, as, as John noted as well in Zechariah 3, that those accusations, they don't hold merit. They don't hold water. And so you need to stop listening to the lies. You need to stop listening to the lies. You are being lied to every day by Satan. What is that lie? Identify it. Replace it with the words of Christ. His words matter. And when he looks upon us, the first words on his lips are my son, my daughter, my child. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies these words are also, this whole uh, statement actually here by Paul is really uh, harkens from a, a passage in Isaiah chapter 50. I wanted to read it to you. This is actually in reference to, to Christ. This is in reference to the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. And notice the parallels in Isaiah. We see here in verse 7. And this is the suffering servant speaking. This is this is really the, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Christ speaking about what is to come as he comes to this earth. And it says, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, like like a rock. I am focused and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. In verse 9, surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they, are all, they, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And this idea of condemnation, this is exactly where Paul goes. Notice verse 34. He continues, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. We find ourselves still in the courtroom here. And now Paul poses the rhetorical question, who will condemn God's elect? What evidence will you procure to punish this Christian, to condemn this Christian, to chastise this Christian? And once again, the would-be prosecutors they have no charge. They fling accusations, but they hold no merit. For they know that the Son of God has firmly and finally assured His children entrance into the kingdom of God by the death of His Son. Jesus has triumphed over death at His resurrection. He is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And if that weren't enough, Jesus is interceding on our behalf before the Father. That is to say, He is perpetually reminding the Father of our status as His sons and daughters. No accusation. No accuser. 
can thwart our intercessor. Paul continues in verse 35. Romans 8, verse 35. He writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake, Lord, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You know, there are... uh, there are many things in this world that would cause us to question God's love. I know that. I'm not, uh, I'm not naive. I know that it is often the case that when we go through suffering, when we go through times of distress and trouble, in the back of our minds, in the recesses of our brain, we think, does God still love me? Is God, is He punishing me somehow? Have I done something wrong? These experiences of hardship and of distress, they've been coming with greater frequency lately, haven't they? Um, I I know this because I I speak with many of you regularly, and I know that many within this church are are struggling extra these days. We are experiencing a greater measure of tribulation and distress. More people have, uh, in the last, uh, in, in 2010 alone, uh, the, the ladies in the office can attest to this. More people have come to our office door asking for food. Food. Than have asked for food in the last three years. Combined. Um, we are getting inundated with uh, requests for help and for assistance. There is much tribulation. There is much distress a measure of, of famine even in, even in this country. And some rightly, uh, well, some, I, I would say, naturally, they look upon their distress and they look upon their suffering and they think, does God still love me? Does He still care for me and my family? Does He have a plan? What is ahead, Lord? I, I don't get it. This has been way too long. Way too long of a time of suffering for me. Way too long of a time of hardship. I can't take it any longer, Lord. Jesus Himself said in John 16.33, He says, In the world you will have tribulation. And Paul has certainly emphasized time and time again the stark reality of Christian suffering. And here, in verse 36, he's quoting from Psalm 44, in which David writes, For your sake, Lord, we're killed all day long. We are accounted or we're treated like sheep for the slaughter. In other words, we're we're killed all day long. It's like we're dying many times over in a day. It's like we're experiencing this, this repeated sense of distress and tribulation and trouble. We're treated like sheep for the slaughter. And we, and we look at the Lord and we say, why, Lord? Why? I don't understand it. I don't understand why you've taken me this far only to leave me with, with this end. But then, but then we stop. And then we, we step back and we look, we look at the cross and we remember that God has... From the beginning of time, 
He's always used suffering as a backdrop to glory. Always. He's always used suffering as a backdrop to bring forth His glory, His goodness. He did that on the cross at Calvary. He put His Son on the cross. He turned His face. Could not look upon His Son. The sin of the world put upon His shoulders. And Jesus died. But yet, through that suffering, through that backdrop of pain and utter uh, distress and hardship and tribulation, through the greatest of sufferings, Christ rose three days later. He rose up. And He rose up victorious. He rose up glorious. And on the last day, we will look back, we will look at all things that have happened, all the suffering, all the distress, all the hardship. We will look at the glory. Look at what Christ has and look at what God has for us. And we will say, my goodness, these things on this earth that we thought were difficult, they pale in comparison. Amen? They pale in comparison. They don't hold a drop to what you will have. And I know that many of you are suffering. I know you are. And the Scriptures tell us that we're going to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. And we will come alongside you in your time of suffering. We will. But we will also remind each other that we will get through this. You will get through this. This will not be forever. Suffering is merely a backdrop to glory. Hebrews 2, 9-11 We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him, for whom... All are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering for both he who sanctifies and those being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Just as Jesus conquered death, so also we can conquer the things that come our way. Verse 37 in all these things. We are more than conquerors, super conquerors, he says, through Christ who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. No attack of the enemy. Nothing in this life. Nothing that is to come. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. The question is, do you believe that? We can read words of Scripture, but whether we appropriate them as our own, whether we put those words into our hearts and let that be the ground, the lens through which we view this suffering. 
If we're not looking at the suffering through the lens of Romans 8, 38 and 39, we are not looking at it properly. Nothing will separate you from God's love. And as that woman in the 17th century wrapped herself around the clapper of the bell and held on tight as it swayed no less, held on tight that it might not chime and bring immediate death, execution upon her fiancé, so also the Lord has covered us He has covered you in His love. Wholly. Utterly. Completely. He has wrapped His arms around you so tightly. All the lies are fading away. All the accusations are fading away. The lies that you tell yourself, know they are lies. For your righteousness is in Christ. Your worthiness is hid in Christ. You are able to be saved, not because of your own merit, but because of the merit of Jesus Christ. I mentioned uh, the great gifts that we receive that often we want to push away. And and this is one of mine. This is my grandfather's Bible. And he, uh, he has some old, old hymns. And I don't know if you can see this piece of paper, but... I barely want to touch it. I feel like it's Greek papyri or something like that. Uh, but um, he has a hymn. I've never sung it, and I can't read music, so it's a shame. But maybe Marianne will play it one day for us. But uh, the hymn is called, If We Could See Beyond Today. And I just wanted to read you the first verse. If We Could See Beyond Today by Norman Clayton. If we could see beyond today as God can see if all the clouds should roll away the shadows flee our present griefs we would not fret each sorrow we would soon forget for many joys are waiting yet for you and for me many joys are coming many joys and I want, us, I want you to open your eyes a little wider in the midst of suffering. I want you to open your eyes a little bit wider in the midst of the hardship you're going through. And to know assuredly that if we could know beyond today as God doth know, we would know that joys, joys await us yet for you and for me. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we declare by Your Word that we can handle the hardship and the distress and the suffering that You bring our way. Lord, we know that we incur this, that we go through this because You want us, through suffering, to attain a measure of glory in Your kingdom. We know that's been Your plan all along. You did it with Your Son. You did it with Your people Israel. You've done it time and time again through the Scriptures, Lord. Those who at one point, were without words to describe their hardship. And in the end, Father, You glorified them. You set them up. You made them join heirs with Your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for the same focus, the same fortitude in our hearts that like flint 
Father, that we would be focused, eyes hardened on the goal that is before us. That through the sufferings that we share in Christ, we will be moving on toward glory. God, I pray that You would uphold us, that You would be near us, that You would sustain us in our time of hardship, that we would gather around each other in mourning and in sorrow, but also in words of encouragement that would remind us of the glory that is to come. Father, we know the plan that You have for us. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope and a future. And we claim that promise. In Jesus' name we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen.